Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Introversion Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Drew Tarvin. Drew of uh, TED Talk 7.5 million views fame. <laughs> I'm honored to have him with us here today. And the story of how Drew and I met is actually an interesting one that even I am not completely familiar with. Uh, I have to jog my own memory here, and I'm hoping Drew can enlighten me as well, because I know that we met through a mutual friend, and it was because at the time I was looking into changing my name legally, and the first name that I thought of that I had been thinking about for a long time was Drew. So I was thinking about changing my name to Drew, and somebody put me in touch with you, I guess, to talk to another Drew and see what your life experience has been like. So do you do you happen to remember who that friend was that put us in touch? I'm trying to think, and I don't. I don't think that I I do. I'm trying to search kind of old messages and things like that. Uh-huh. That's that's my memory. I don't know if that's good or bad, but my memory is either Evernote or like email. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I looked on Facebook, and we had two mutual friends. It was Arnold, and um, I think Raman, my my friend who I met through another friend. I think he worked at Pinterest at the time. So I don't know if it was I don't I don't really remember either of them introducing me to you, but oh yeah, it might have been our not. Uh, and then I'm good actually. Uh, so uh, Raman and I are the we co-host a, a podcast together, the PNG Alumni Learnings from Leaders oh. podcast. So Raman and I spent uh, uh, our time together at PNG, and then he worked at a startup that worked heavily with Pinterest. So maybe that's how you all got connected. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I think I met him through an ex girlfriend of mine or something. I don't know. Kind of weird. It was all. <laughs> How it all connects, but um, uh, I, I find it really interesting because um, I really appreciated what you wrote on Facebook the other day. I know you had a long post there about race, uh, racism and race relations, and and I meant, I saw how you mentioned you have an engineering background and you look at things in terms of problem solving, you know, that kind of analytical mm-hmm. approach. And I went back and I listened to your, your TED Talk, and a couple things stood out to me that I didn't realize. So one was that you and I both have engineering degrees from Big Ten schools. Nice. You, where you went, Where is yours? So you went to Ohio State. I went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we both also ditched that corporate path to instead pursue something more creative, uh, comedy for you. And I know it's kind of more in the realm of comedy consult, consulting, I guess, but I, I, I guess you have done stand-up and that kind of thing as well. Um, so comedy for you, design and animation for me. But yeah, I do have a passion for comedy and I've, I've been jotting down bit ideas for years and uh, it's on my bucket list to at least try doing standup, um, you know, and but at the very least, I want to incorporate more comedy into my art and design and video content. So, yeah, we have that in common. And then we're also INTJs. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, INTJs. I, I, I remember I, I did that. So I do a, a, a bit. Um, on my personality assessments, right? That I'm a type A blue square conscientious INTJ with the sign of Aquarius. Uh, <laughs> and uh, an INTJ came up to me afterwards and they're like, that is, it's such an INTJ thing to know <laughs> all of your personality assessments. Right, right. Yeah, I, I find it hilarious that I think statistically speaking, INTJs are one of the rarest breeds on the planet. Mm-hmm. And yet, I end up meeting so many INTJs, but I think it's because we're the kind of people who 
would be vocal about that kind of thing. You know, we're the kind of people who we would even know that we are INTJs, whereas everybody else wouldn't even really know what they are. Right. You know? We would know that we're INTJs. We would know that they're pretty rare. And we would know that also that Myers-Briggs is like, okay, yeah, it's not the perfect, most exact system in the world, but it is kind of interesting. Um, I think we all kind of know that. So I've, I've, I've connected with fellow INTJs as well. And that's, I mean, that's part of the value of things like humor or, or connection. It's those, those similarities. As soon as you have that, like, Hey, I'm an INTJ, you're an INTJ, like regardless of other background, we have at least that thing in common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I was saying, um, the other day, so I have traditionally tested INTJ, but there started to be a phase in my life where I was actually going more INFJ. Yeah, okay. And um, I think, my theory is, because I haven't taken the test in a long time, but I feel like if I were to take it today, I would probably be back to INTJ because, and it's weird because this is going to tie in with like everything we're going to talk about today is like, I, I feel like I'm, I kind of drift into the more feeling, emotional, artistic, creative side of things. But then I also drift into the more conservative upbringing that I had and like the, the engineering mind, the mathematics, the logic, the analytics, the statistics. And I feel like with everything going on in our society today right now, I feel like society is leaning way toward the emotional end. And I think to counteract that, because my personality is I'm kind of a contrarian at heart, you know, if everybody's going this way, I tend to go the other way, right? So if, if, mm -hmm. if society is more emotional, I'm choosing to counteract that with a more analytical side of things. Kind of like to be a voice of reason in unreasonable times is kind of how mm -hmm. I feel about it. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel about that? Like, do you do you also swing that way? And given what's going on in society these days, do you feel kind of more yeah. this way or that way? Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily I, I wouldn't necessarily think of myself as a contrarian in the sense of like shifting. But I think, you know, back to the idea of of I like solving problems. Like I let's why I you know I do crossword puzzles. I um you know play Minesweeper or Rubik's Cube or whatever. Like you know it's just things that like small things of of solving problems I enjoy doing, and and that's why part of why I do comedy is because there's a logic to comedy and it's almost like math with words. It's like kind of mm -hmm. how do I solve this logic problem so that people laugh. Um, but when it comes to other things, I think in a way, if I think about it, like as a, to be a problem solver, you have to be a little bit contrarian because you have to say, okay, here's how, this is how something exists currently. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way to make it better. And so how do I make it better? And so maybe I think of it in that regard that certainly society impacts it because it's like, okay, what is the focus or what's, what are some of the biggest challenges going on right now? And okay, can I use humor to solve them? Or can I use uh, logic to solve them? Or can I use an analogy to help kind of solve them. And, and maybe that's where the impact of society comes in. Yeah. So speaking of that specifically, um, I kind of wanted to talk, I kind of wanted to dive into the racism and all that stuff going on right now in society. And then toward the end, touch on comedy um, and really get deep into that, almost kind of like a follow-up to your TED talk. But But since you brought up that last thing, I do want to ask you that specifically in this moment. Like, Given the current climate, do you feel that comedy is effective or can be effective or like, you know what I mean? Like, because I personally, yeah. like with my podcast, my podcast, I just started um, about a month ago. 
And I feel like every episode I've done has been super serious. <laughs> and I think people getting the initial impression of the podcast is like, oh, okay, this is a guy who talks about politics and society and really heavy issues. And it's, it's not really a fun podcast, but I'm like, no, 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 I, I, it will be fun, you know, but not now, you know? So, right. but how do you feel about comedy in terms of what's going on right now? Well, the comedy is, it can be, it can be both, right? It can be someone that could be so uh, helpful to the situation and everything that's going on. It could also be something that's so detrimental. And uh, I'll, I'll kind of expand on that a little bit more. The ways that it can, maybe we'll start with the detrimental. The ways that it, you know, comedy can be negative is one is it can reinforce stereotypes. It can create stronger and stronger in-groups, which therefore creates out-groups where people aren't a part of that yeah. uh, experience, right? It can bring certain groups. So you can, you know, whether it's the left or the right, you can meme your way to more extreme views, almost in a sense. Uh, and I think you saw that some in, in 2016. The other thing that, you know, comedy can be a negative for is, um, in a good way, comedy is great for catharsis. It is a great way to relieve tension and stress, uh, which typically is a good thing. However, if you have systematic or systemic issues that need fixing, if you relieve too much tension with comedy, then I think people are perhaps less likely to act. Uh, and some of this kind of research or thinking comes back from the days of court jesters, right? If you think about it, it would be kind of weird for a king to put in a court jester, someone that's going to constantly be making fun of the king and the kingdom. But the reason why they did it was through the jester, the audience or, you know, the, the people's subjects, the serfs and things like that could laugh. They could relieve tension and they'd be like, that's so true. That's a crazy thing. So that they wouldn't revolt. You know, there's some some research that suggests that's the same thing for Carnival and, say, Brazil and other places, that you give people this catharsis, this fun moment, this fun week, this fun month or whatever, so that they don't look at the other 11 months of the year that are terrible for them. And mm -hmm. so that's in some ways that comedy can be negative, right? It, it creates this catharsis. You kind of relieve that stress. And so then you don't go to the voting booth or you don't uh, get active into um, campaigns or other things. So that's the negative. The positive is that uh, one, it can create stronger, supportive uh, groups. It can help, you know, in a way, speak truth to power, like is, uh, you know, to, to take that terminology. But what it does is if you can get people to laugh, you can disarm them. They feel like in order to make someone laugh, you have to understand them a little bit. And when you make them laugh, they feel like you do understand them. And so once you get them, get them lasting, there's a, a sales uh, guy named um, Jeffrey Gittimer who says that at the end of laughter is the height of listening, right? So if you get people kind of paying attention and listening a little bit, then you can start to insert some messaging there. And so part of what determines whether or not it's detrimental or helpful is the material that you're doing and what message you give once you have people listening. And so that's where my approach has been of like, okay, how can I use humor to, I want to, I don't want to preach to the choir, right? That was part of the, the Facebook post putting it out there is I don't want to just kind of like talk to my bubble of living in New York city and all that. And people are like, mm -hmm. you know, nodding their heads. I want some of the people who are either on the fence or have gone kind of the other direction to kind of be like, oh, well, that's a funny point or, oh, that's said in such a way I've never really thought about it before. 
and just give that like, you know, inception seed of an idea to maybe be able to start to help change. Because that's my focus is how to solving the problem is, is getting some people to change. It's not pretending that they don't exist or being aggressive towards them. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. So um, could you give an example of, okay, so as I see it, as, as we all see it, let's face it, there's a divide in this country. There's, mm-hmm. there's a left, right, you know, red, blue. And I just saw on Twitter yesterday, COVIDiots was trending. Mm-hmm. And I looked under there out of curiosity which by the way is kind of my approach to everything happening now is like, I will literally watch any video. I will listen to anyone speak, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't care if I agree or disagree with, I will, I will literally listen to the head of the KKK speak out of curiosity. You know, I want to yeah. see what people are saying and thinking, you know, and I feel like not to go off on a tangent here, but I feel like they're with kind of the, the way that the left is kind of, is a, the leftist approach to things now and a little bit of the kind of social justice warrior kind of um, methodology is to silence people, to cancel people, to, to, to block people out, to deplatform de- people because we don't like their ideas. Let's just cancel them. And mm-hmm. that's not fundamentally how I go about approaching anything in life is like, look, you know, I, I might hate something, but I still want to at least, understand it to the point where I know why I hate it, you know, rather than just going by hearsay or whatever. Um, but sorry, I didn't, I don't, I just wanted to put that out there, the curiosity, the spirit of curiosity, but I want to come well, back. And that's, to that's a valuable, it's a valuable trait to have for humor as well. That's where your humor starts is that curiosity. And I think that's the, that's why sometimes comedians can, you know, they say things that you're like, Oh, I've never thought of it that way. Or that is so true. Why have I like never, you know, put it in that term and it, and it's a curiosity, right? It's, it's a willingness to sit back and observe a little bit and and be open to different ideas. And I, I agree with you on that in the sense that, you know, if we vilify people, then they're not going to change. You're only going to double down. If right. we ignore people, then they're not going to change and we're just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Right. Um, it's only through learning a little bit more and then maybe through and hopefully through conversation. And maybe this is, you know, naive on my part or optimistic. I'm a relatively optimistic person, <laughs> but it's only through those types of conversations. Can you create any type of change? Right. Agreed. So. So we're on the same page about the curiosity thing. So mm-hmm. I was curious. I go look up COVIDiots. And what it was was a bunch of leftists, kind of liberal, Democrat, that kind of side. They're demonizing and mocking all the Trump supporters and I guess conservatives and Republicans who went to Tulsa to go attend this rally. And they're calling them all COVIDiots. And that is the extent of the humor. And... I think that would go against all the principles you talk about when you talk about sort of a healthy humor. Um, so my question is, that is all I see. I, I, I see it go both ways from left to right and right to left, but I, I see a lot of it more. I see a lot more of it from the left than the right, because I feel like people on the right, uh, and it depends which conservatives you follow. I happen to follow, I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Rubin. But I love Dave Rubin. Like uh, politically, he's kind of my guy. He's very libertarian in his views. He's neither here nor there. He's a he used to be a liberal. 
he still considers himself a classic liberal, but now he's kind of more on the conservative side of things. But I don't see as much mocking of the left by the right as I do the left mocking the right. And I say that because most all of my friends on Facebook, so basically all of the articles, all of the links, everything that I see are all of my liberal New York, you know, LA friends who without, I mean, just relentlessly have been mocking Trump and his supporters and anybody who's Republican or conservative. I mean, since before 2016, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. So all that being said, my question is, what would it look like for people on the left side of the aisle to be funny and have a healthy form of comedy that doesn't consist of just toxic attacking and shaming people with different views on the right and in theory, vice versa. Yeah. Well, and I think it, I, I, I've definitely seen plenty of mocking uh, of the right to the left. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's on both sides. Um, and I mean, you see it coming from Trump himself in terms of, and maybe this is yeah. a, a quote unquote effective strategy of, you know, sleepy Joe and crooked Hillary and like, just like COVID right. is a nickname, right. Giving nicknames right. as well. And, and that's partially the value, like, you know, slogans and pithy statements and things like that. There is, they can have tremendous power because they start to, you know, subtly influence people to like, I don't even know where sleepy Joe comes from, but. <laughs> for that base people are then like yeah i guess he, I, I don't know what that means i don't know what the negativity of sleepy joe is it that he's like not strong is it not whatever but it's a name that now everyone can use yeah. and it allows them to aggress just like covidious or just like you know trump gret uh like the regret stuff or you know um on reddit like leopardate my face and things like that and and in any of those spots what i think of first is you know, you ask the question of what what could it look like. There, there is a difference between humor and comedy, and and comedy is really about the punchline. It's really about getting people kind of to to laugh, and humor is more broad than that. It is you know defined as a comic absurd or incongruous quality causing amusement. And so you know certainly with with my background in corporate, with my general optimism anyway, like my even when I'm doing stand up comedy, if it's a late show, it's a two drink minimum, it's 10 p.m. on a Friday night, I'm still clean, like when it comes to my material because that's just my own kind of personal choice. And okay. so I'm always kind of thinking the more positive, inclusive. And so that's why my company is humor that works, not comedy that works. That's why I talk about the value of humor in the workplace, not necessarily comedy in the workplace. And so what I would say from a, a humor perspective. There's a great um, XKCD comic that is um, called the 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 Today's Ten Thousand. I don't remember the exact title, but basically, it's this idea of you know sometimes you're in conversation with people, and uh, you know it kind of happened with my fiance the other day, whereas uh, we were maybe going to go. We went to a drive-in movie theater last night um, to be able to still socially distance. We saw ET, the doubleheader. The second movie was Goonies. And she's never seen the Goonies. And part of us, like our initial thing is to be like, how could you never see that? Oh my God, you're like so uncultured or whatever to not have seen this. <laughs> and this XKCD comic is does some basic kind of math to say that every single day there's like 10,000 people on the planet that are being introduced to something cool for the very first time. And rather than taking the approach of what, you're an idiot, how have you not seen this or whatever, you're so uncultured, why not be like, oh my God, I'm so excited. 
because you're one of today's 10,000. You're one of today's people who get to get introduced to this Goonies movie that I grew up on or this new thing or this whatever. And so I think of that as kind of the same approach of rather than kind of aggressively being like, hey, you're you're an idiot for this. It's finding the positive humor to bring people in. Uh, to to create this experience that people are like, no, I want to join that because it's giving me what it is that, you know, something maybe that I'm missing or that is helpful and it's it's a little bit more inclusive. I don't have, you know, if I had the exact answer, I'd probably be putting it more into uh, to action. But right now, I'm, you know, so I don't know what it is yet, but I'm I'm trying to learn and understand from other groups that there's a group called Atpor, uh, who was in, I believe it was Serbia who used humor as an effective way to help topple down a, a dictatorship to gain support. It's now a political party. And I don't know a ton of the history of it. My brother does more. Uh, he, he teaches a course on rhetoric of humor. So he uses it as a case study. So I want to learn about it. But I think starting from the, the standpoint of, of positivity and inclusivity is going to create more of a welcoming experience and being, you know, aggressive humor. Okay. It's interesting, um, the distinction you made between comedy and humor. I hadn't really, I've never heard that before. I've never made that distinction, I guess. Um, that's, uh, that's good food for thought, though, to make that distinction. Do you know the comedian Dimitri Martin? I do, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. Yeah, yeah right, right. So he's one of my favorite comedians in a way. But at the same time, what you just described in terms of comedy versus humor I don't laugh out loud at his material, mm-hmm. you know, like there's other com- comedians who just crack me up, but with him, I guess it, it, it's more like humor to me than comedy because he, it's very clever, you know, it's very artful and it's very funny, but I don't laugh at it. So I don't know when you immediately started describing the distinction, I, I me and my mind immediately went to Dimitri Martin. Um, yeah. And I think more, that's true because comedy, the, the goal of comedy typically is, you know, again, that, that laughter, it is to, in some senses, be perceived as funny. Um, whereas humor it is. And so with comedy, it's very structured. Most of the time, it's very set up and punch, right? It's very set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline, maybe punchline, 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 if you got uh, good tags and things like that. Whereas humor, you know, again, is a little bit different. So Dimitri Martin might be that, um, you know, David Sedaris might be more of a humorist, right? Mark Twain is a, was a humorist as opposed to, say, a comedian. Uh, and so, yeah, it is a, a slightly different distinction. And the goal is different. And that's what, you know, it's from the, the corporate side of things, that's what my, the reason why I teach people how to use humor is not so that people perceive them as funny, is not so they necessarily can go and do stand-up, although they could theoretically after what they learn. It's more, okay, how do I now use this humor to achieve this specific result? Or like we talked about kind of at the very beginning is how do you, I use humor to solve this problem? That's why my made-up job title is Humor Engineer is because when I was trying to define what it is that I did, right, I was a computer science engineer, and that was, okay, I solved problems using computers, technology, programming. Okay, what am I doing now? Oh, by helping organizations, I'm helping them solve problems using humor. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's, yeah, okay, humor engineer. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. Especially with your engineering background. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Um, my degree was actually in industrial engineering, which I don't know if you knew this. Uh, there's a, 
there's kind of a uh, it's kind of mocking uh, a nickname for it. we're called imaginary engineers. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> you know, like we're not real engineers. We're like you know, but it's funny. It never offended me that idea. But now, because I am a creative guy and I am all about imagination and coming up with things, I'm like, oh, kind of like how you're the humor engineer. I feel like imaginary engineer actually suits me pretty well. Yeah, um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool term. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Okay, so there's still a lot more I want to get into about comedy, um, but let's really get into the meat here, and we can maybe come back to comedy toward the end. Mm-hmm. So what kind of brought us back together was your your post on race and everything going on in society right now. So obviously this is the topic that everyone in society is uh, talking about and dealing with uh, in their own way. And the interesting thing right now is I've seen a big push for, okay, white people shut up now. Uh, let's listen to black voices. And there was one day where I got an email because, you know, I'm sure my inbox has been flooded with Black Lives Matter emails from every company, every institution, every, every, everything, as I'm sure yours has and everyone's has. But I got one email, I think it was from General Assembly. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but. Yeah, um, yeah I used to do some classes with them. Oh, cool. Teach some classes there. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I got their email and then it said, you know, we want more, it was something to do with like more support for black and brown people. And I saw that and I was like, oh, 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 now I, I get, now I get to have my voice heard. Like now it's like one, one point on the scorecard for like, all right, cause I'm brown. Mm-hmm. Um, so that feeling of just seeing, it was like a, a blip, you know, cause everything I've seen is black. And then there was one mentioning of brown and I was like, oh, that's me. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing is I feel in a way that we're going about this all the wrong way. And I feel like the answer to racism is not more racism. (laughs) And unfortunately that is what I see happening. And when, when I talk about, I actually, I, I've been, it's on my to-do list. I want to go back and listen to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I want to listen to the whole thing and probably do a podcast episode specifically on that because I feel like just from the little bit that I remember from the speech, I feel like we have deviated, you know, the minority rights and black rights, all of it has deviated from that core message of essentially meritocracy and equal opportunity for all Americans Mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're white, black, anything else, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or whatever in between, we're deviating from that, I feel like. Because, you know, instead of judging a man or a person by the content of their character, we're judging them by the color of their skin. What I mean when I say that is that, oh, you're a white person? Oh, you need to shut up now. You know, we've, we've heard from you long enough. You're, oh, you're a white male? Oh, you definitely need to shut up. You know? And... For me, and it depends, like this is another thing. It's kind of like, okay, if we're all going to debate, if we're all going to discuss, we need to get on the same page in terms of what are the terms and what do they mean, right? So what does racism mean? What does racist mean, right? So as I define it, and I actually looked it up the other day and it was like racist is like the belief that one race is superior to another, um, 
that was kind of the, the thrust of it. And there was kind of a part B and a part C of it. But okay, so if racism is really about racial superiority and belittling and putting down another race, you know, as I see it, how is that not ra- how is that not racist toward white people to tell people to tell white people they have to shut up because they're white or all white people are racist? You know, I could go on and on. I've heard this yeah. expressed in like 20 different ways. So you, you see what I'm saying here, though, how I feel. And I feel like this is the kind of thing that I can even say as a brown person. But you couldn't you couldn't come out and say what I just said. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that for sure, just because you because I it, it's interesting. And, and to your point of like, should I speak or not? And that like, you know, feeling that I I am the majority I have all of the privileges, basically, almost. I am a uh, college-educated, straight, white male living in the United States. And, like, the only minority thing about me is that I'm left-handed, which means that I, uh, on average, will die seven years sooner and that I can't use scissors. That's, like... That's like my discrimination or whatever. Or, I mean, the, the, and the only, like, at least in recent memory, the only discrimination that I face on a consistent basis is that I am an Android phone user. And so, you know, people don't like me because I change the color of their text messages with yeah. iPhones and do all the other fun stuff or yeah, whatever. So I'm left just, out of group chats and other things. Yeah, you did uh, just lose a couple points in my book. Yeah. Right. That. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, what? Android. Yeah. Uh, I can't do airdrop to send you a quick photo of something. I've got to do it on Google Drive or all, you know, like so. But and I can comedically say that because I'm sitting in the the majority. But to have privilege doesn't mean that you don't have strife or challenges. To be in the majority, it doesn't mean that you can't experience racism. Uh, it just means that the impact of it typically is pretty different. And I think, you know. It, it's an interesting thing about equality is that, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't have enough research and everything understanding this, but equality doesn't always mean treating people equal, right? Because like you say, you have this idea of like, yeah, but can't we all, okay, meritocracy, let's judge it based off of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. If you grow up, and, and one of the, you know, distinctions is also a class distinction, but if you grow up and you are learning from textbooks that are 30 years old uh, in a classroom of, you know, 30 people with um, someone who hasn't necessarily like, you know, the the teacher is doing a tremendous amount of work, but isn't necessarily at the top of like the teaching game or something, or you don't have access to nutrition, right? You're constantly kind of hungry. How well are you going to study compared to someone who is, who has all of those things provided for them? If you are in an environment where you go to an interview and you meet seven people and none of the people that you meet are of your same makeup in the sense of, you know, skin color or um, gender or, uh, you know, whatever, then that's a different kind of that doesn't necessarily mean that it was an equal interview. So you have these and this is where the systemic racism comes in or the systemic prejudice comes in that creates the challenge. So equality doesn't always mean treating people exactly the same. And this is true in the way that I think about it of because some people are like, ah, I don't know about that. But if you think about it as a leader, if you think purely corporate, if I'm going to be a good leader, right, we go back to Myers-Briggs. If I'm a good leader, I don't treat 
someone who has the type A personality with the same person who has a creative mindset, but isn't necessarily very disciplined about how they get work done. One person, I give them a goal and allow them to go and run with it. The other person, I do continual check-ins and, and support. So as a leader, if I want change, drawing the strengths from people, because people have different strengths, isn't treating everyone exactly the same. And yeah. so I think that's part of the challenge is thinking about how we think about, quote unquote, equality. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree. I agree. I agree, I agree with what you said um, when we are talking about privilege there. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the equality, the name of the equality game is kind of like leveling the playing field, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there was a, a fantastic, um, it was a video, a viral video from a while ago. And it was a teacher. They had a bunch of students lined up in a field. I don't know if you saw this video, but it was like, okay. We're yeah, I remember. Race. I yeah, remember that. It's like, yeah. whoever gets to me first gets $100. And then I was like, okay, yeah. but before we start, right. if you have blank, take one step forward. And so yeah. then, and you know, you know, if you have, you know, if your parents are still together, if you have, um, you know, they have a college education, if they have whatever, and you're just doing these different things that are basically hindrances for people growth and you physically see that change. Yeah. Demonstrations like that, that's an example, not necessarily of comedy and maybe not even necessarily humor, but that's a way of framing something and people are like, oh, you start to shake your head a little bit more like, okay, I kind of understand it. And yeah. that to me is at least my, you know, I don't know if the question is coming or not, but the question becomes, okay, why speak up? Why is yet another male voice? Do I feel that I can and or should speak up? Part of my thought is if I am good at making people laugh, if I'm good at framing things in a way that people kind of understand and maybe have a slightly different view into, then rather than just doing that for corporate productivity, how can I also do that for perhaps social change. And I think that video is a great example of, of saying things in a slightly different way. So people are like, okay, I kind of understand it a little bit more. Yeah. Let me ask you, have you, have you gotten the, uh, have you been accused of mansplaining yet? Uh, I have from, from time to time. Um, okay. uh, and also from, from American splaining. Uh, Cause my fiance oh, really? is, uh, because my fiance is German. Okay. Uh, you know, she was born and raised in Germany. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, there's been kind of some times where I'm like, oh, but this, and she's like, no, no, I get it. It's just a, a different framing. So, um, I've been accused of it. I think I have been guilty of it less times than I've been accused of it. Um, but it is something for sure. I've been like, oh, okay, actually, no, my apologies. You're exactly right. Like I've, I've been had to call had, had to have been called on it a couple of times as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, because I, I, I see a lot of that and I, I just, I actually, okay. So I've been on this weird, slight little tangent here. I'm going to go on. So I've been on this weird Facebook experiment thing lately where not, I haven't been unfriending everybody, but I've been unfollowing almost maybe half of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is just for my own sanity, because everything that I said earlier about all of the leftist attacks on Trump and Republicans and conservatives, I'm like, look, I don't even, Trump is not my guy. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't know what I am politically, but I, I'm not a hardcore Republican for sure. I'm not a hardcore Democrat for sure. But, but seeing all of the vitriol constantly, I'm like, I just can't, I just can't, I can't take it mm-hmm. anymore. It's not doing any good for me. So I've unfollowed so many of these friends of mine and uh 
what I have started doing though, is when I like, same thing with like your post or a couple other ones, I will kind of look at the comments underneath and I'll see some people where most, if mostly I, if I agree with them, but also maybe if I slightly disagree with them, but I like how they're thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I will potentially, and I've done this a couple of times now where I'll reach out to that person and, uh, you know, send them a message and say, Hey, I like how you think. I like what you wrote in that post and we'll have a little back and forth and I'll send them a friend request. And so I've become friends this way with a couple new people in the last couple of weeks. And it's cool because I feel like I'm connecting with strangers, like friends of friends, um, who are kind of like-minded in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, now I just did that with this, uh, white woman, uh, on a, another white woman's friends post who lives in LA, I think. And we were on the same page about masks and wearing masks mm-hmm. or not wearing masks. And so I added her or I, she sent me a friend request cause I said, I'm open to that. And I accepted. And then she was, then I looked on her, her most recent post and she was basically all for defunding the police. And she's describing the situation in this very poetic way, like Kumbaya, like, you know, we don't really need police. And, and uh, a white, I think he was a white male. He was definitely a male, but I think he was a white male friend of hers commented and explained something. And I think this guy actually has a background in uh, counseling, you know, social work. And um, he said, based on his experience and his life, you know, like it's not as simple as just defunding the police. You, You know, you can't put, social workers in harm's way, like these, these issues and problems go very deep. And so he kind of just, you know, the guy is well experienced and well trained and he said his piece. And then the woman who I just added as my quote unquote, like-minded friend Mm -hmm. called him out for mansplaining. (laughs) And I was like, Oh man, (laughs) you know? So again, like my sympathies go out to the white men out there because (laughs) But at the same time, what you said is true. Like you have been at the top of the pyramid for this whole time. You know, the white straight male in America, you know, or Europe for the longest time. And you seem to be pretty comfortable about it. You seem to be pretty confident about it, which I guess maybe that's the white privilege of after generations and generations and generations is of being at the top of the pyramid. It's like you've developed the skin, the thick skin to withstand whatever assault is coming your way right now. I Tell me yeah. if I'm off about that, but I get that impression. No, is that- no I mean, I think that that's part of it. Part And, in, in, you know, I I won't say that I, I, I don't like the term like woke, right? I'm not woke because certainly things happened for a long time and I just kept on hitting snooze in terms of, of like trying to be aware of some of the the privilege and part of it for me started in college because I was an RA and we had to do research and things. But you're exactly right. Part of that confidence comes from that success. I, as growing up in the US, if I've looked for role models, I've never been at a loss for words of who's a role model and any kind of thing that I want to look at to like, you know, within business, I see people that look like me with, you know, I've been told also I'm, uh, you know, elder millennial. So I've also been told I can be whatever it is that I want. And with that has come to a certain level of, of confidence, you know, and this is, there's some research that suggests that this is like a gender thing, like being a male, you're kind of just raised with that, like you can do it and you've got it. And, you know, there's studies that show that men more often than women, if there's a job and they meet, you know, three out of the like, 
seven criteria for their job, they'll still apply because they're like, ah, oh, I don't have some of the other stuff, but that's okay because, you know, I can make up for it in my skill in X, Y, or Z. Like I got this. Whereas women, they could meet, you know, 13 out of the 14, but they don't have that one thing. So they won't apply, right? There's a certain level of confidence just based on what they've been told kind of their entire career. And I, I see this with my fiance because she is way smarter than I am. She is way more disciplined than I am. And yet she goes through some of these additional challenges by the nature of the name that they see come across. And so absolutely, the, the, the privileges I think that I've gained has given me confidence. And then the engineer, and this is the, the way that I want to try to approach things is from, because to your point, yeah, I am, I don't want to unfollow a lot of people in the sense that I don't want to create a bubble. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest detriments to what social media does is, yeah. is two things. One, it rage creates more engagement. And so whether it is intentional or unintentional, social media a lot of times helps to amplify rage because that's what's going to get more retweets or what's going to get more likes or what's going to get more comments and angry emojis and things like that or bad news, et cetera. This is just, you know, I guess human nature. And then two, it allows you to create an echo chamber. It allows you to create this bubble in which you live so that you only see people that are like-minded. And exactly to your point, like, you know, I want to be able to have conversations with people. I want to on either side. To me, it just should be, let's talk facts. Let's talk, let's be open to ideas. Like a, a friend of mine from high school recently posted, was posting about, you know, the, like you said, kind of defunding the police and the challenges that were going on. And someone got into a conversation with them and they, um, you know, shared an article about something. He was, he made some points. So they shared an article. It was a CNN article uh, that was say, was explaining what defund the police really means for most people, right? Part of it is, a, is language. Uh, and he was like, first of all, I have two rules. I never read anything from CNN, which is like, okay, I'm curious on where you get your news source from. It's complete. Yeah, absolutely. There's bias there. There's bias in Fox News. There's bias in CNBC, et cetera. But like, okay, to, to discount it completely. And two, and the thing that maybe made me a little bit more worried than the other is it's like, uh, I also don't read anything that criticizes the police. And that's that's a hard stand to take because regardless yeah. of how you feel to say that I'm never going to read anything that criticizes this one thing. Right. Isn't like discourse, isn't growth, isn't understanding. That's more like cult-like behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm not interested necessarily in those types of conversations. But yes, if we disagree on a point, I would much rather have like, let's have a, because that's how I learn. That's how I potentially evolve and mm-hmm. change, or that's how you potentially evolve and change if we're willing to have these types of conversations. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting though, when you, you mentioned facts in there, like how you want to approach things in terms of facts, but I feel like to some degree, we are living in a post-fact society, you know? I yeah, don't want to well, say completely, but to some degree. Yeah, we're living in people don't – well, yeah, people don't seek out facts of what's true or not true. They seek out opinions that reinforce what they already believe. Right. And and that's perhaps one of the biggest challenges – with all of this is, you know, and that's again, from the, from good branding on the, the, you know, Republicans are very good at branding. 
are very good at simplifies f- phrases to give hashtag like fake news. You can now almost discount anything that anyone says just by giving it fake news. And for a certain base, all they need to do is see someone who they trust of their opinion call it fake news and they no longer count whatever that research happens to say. And you're seeing that with COVID as well. Like you're seeing it with COVID. You're seeing it with like, quote unquote, truths that are coming out. You're seeing it with things that people have said. And then three months later, they say, oh, I never said that. And it's like, well, we we do have proof of you saying it. Nope, never said it. Like people are now, again, they're seeking out the opinion of people that they like that reinforce it and not looking at what the actual fact-based thing is. And and so it is an interesting challenge. My wish is that we could go back to facts, but I don't know necessarily how we do that. Yeah, I mean, the, I just recorded a solo episode yesterday and I was talking about the subject of a little bit of fake news, but also I don't want to say fake facts, but it's it's kind of like even science, you know, like you can, with the COVID debate and it's like there are doctors and scientists who believe X about it. And there are doctors and scientists who believe Y about it. So at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to, like you're saying, like, which if I already have a preconceived belief, right, I'm going to only seek out facts that support my preexisting, you know, position, right? That's what you're saying. But what if I don't want to have a preexisting, like, I just want the truth, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's typically how I operate. And I, I think you probably operate the same way is when scientists and doctor over here says this, and when scientists and doctor over there says that, what do you do? You know, at, at some point you have to kind of choose who you're going to believe or not. Yeah. You have to, you have to find credible sources. You have to see and look at what the majority are saying, I think. Yeah. Cause you see this with, you know, uh, vaccines and autism. Right, because sometimes in, in this, I can't remember who phrased it, but they, they put in, I think it was John Oliver had a great episode about this where he's like, so often what we do is, you know, 99% say, or you could do, do the same thing with climate change, but you can say 99% of experts, um, and I'll put experts in quotes there, because again, that, you know, is a conversation of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but 99% of experts agree this one thing. One percent says this, and so then in a debate show, you have them go one on one, and you almost like so. Then we're misconstruing the fact that this is almost a 50 50 percent belief, and it's like, no, it's it's one debunked article about vaccines and autism, um, from a long time ago, plus all of this research that suggests otherwise, and that's not necessarily a one-on-one thing. The other thing I think from a, you know, what we what we can learn from scientists or what I try to do is is you have a hypothesis and it should be worth testing that hypothesis. Like you should be wanting to do that. Like it's not necessarily science isn't to say we always have exactly the truth because it's constantly this is our belief and now we test it. And if we do enough tests, we now can kind of say okay, our theory is kind of it for all intents and purposes, we kind of agree that gravity exists. We can measure it. We can do it multiple times, et cetera. Uh, and yet it's still the theory of gravity, right? Because some things could change. We could learn things about black holes and say, okay, gravity changes it a little bit. I think what people don't do is they have a belief and rather than ever test it, rather than ever be like, can I check that just to confirm? They just kind of like take it at, at face value. You see this with religion a lot, I think, right? Certain religions, you, you just kind of take it as doctrine because someone told you this is the truth rather than, okay, well, 
is this true? And if it's this way, can I question it? And if I question it, really, if you question something and you still get stronger answers, your belief is going to be a little bit stronger in that thing because you've at least, you know, put some thought into it as opposed to just taking whatever someone else has told you. Yeah, agreed. Um, one of the things that I have said uh, a few times is, I actually, I don't know if you know anything about my background, I don't know if I ever told you, but I was, I'm a preacher's kid. So I was raised in Christianity from day one. And I was a Christian my whole life. And I was actually conservative Republican. I, I, I was like the, the quintessential conservative. I grew up in the military as well. So, you know, red state, conservative, Bush voting, Reagan loving, Republican, like that was me. Mm-hmm. And I moved to New York and I kind of evolved and all of a sudden I found myself voting for Obama and I was finally on the same page as all my liberal friends. And I did that for, you know, for eight years. And, and now I've kind of evolved into a place of disillusionment with all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, shit, where was I going with that? <laughs> uh, well, it's probably a matter of, and I'm curious how you, how those evolutions came, but I was talking about that idea of testing. Oh, religion. religion. Yeah. yeah, 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 religion. So... Yeah. So the reason why I brought that up was I see what you're talking about with religion and kind of this cultist idea of like, oh, it's just, it's dogmatic. It's purely dogmatic. Oh, Mm -hmm. tell me, tell me what the right thing is to believe. I don't question it. I just believe it. And anybody else who comes into my sphere who challenges me on that, well, they're the enemy. They're from Satan. They're, you know, they're the devil. And having grown up in, I mean, I didn't grow up in a cult cult, but you know, I grew up in that kind of mentality. I actually see the same trends happening on the left with a lot of this kind of social justice warrior rhetoric and even things like Black Lives Matter. And we'll get into that in a second, but it's basically like you're either with us or you're, you're Hitler, you know, (laughs) that is the paradigm. yeah, well, and like you said, with 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 politics, it's it's absolutely on both sides, right? You are either like you know, for so many people, at least the perception is, and I think it's actually a little bit different, at least you know, on older research of because I I identify as an independent um, because it's like in a in a friend of mine also on Facebook the other day is like it's interesting on the same exact post I can have some people who tell me that I am you know. Uh, a liberal loony or whatever, and other people can tell me that I'm a, a conservative yeah. nut job in the exact same post. And yeah, it's like, okay, right. that's actually a good spot to be in. Right. I'm, right? In like, same, I, yeah, I'm in the same position. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like independent, and there's certain, and, and let's go down by the issues. If you go by the issues, I'm probably a little bit more left leaning than I am right leaning, but it's, you know, part of the reason why. It is independence is, is thinking about that, the individual issues and the individual thoughts rather than saying, Oh, I am blank. Therefore, if 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 liberals say all of this is bad, then okay, I'm going to say all of this is bad. Or if Republicans can say all of this is bad, then I'm going to say all of this is bad. And I think you know, again, back to the the kind of the the religion kind of mindset is in either end of the extreme. If you have someone who is saying things like, oh, you can't say bad things about this person, or if they're like, oh, no, this person is flawless and they don't have any, you know, nothing they do is wrong. Either one of those statements are like, okay, now I feel like you're you're more in the dogmatic stage than you are in the conscious stage. Because, you know, I voted for Obama as well, but it's also like, okay, yeah, there are things that in that presidency that I did not agree with. Mm-hmm. That would be like, no, I would criticize 
you know, I don't know that I'd criticize it directly to Obama's face because if I only get like, you know, 15 minutes with him, I would love <laughs> to talk about humor and basketball. Yeah. Um, but if like in a longer conversation, absolutely. It'd be like, Hey, what about this thing? Like if, and if you don't have that willingness to have a critique or to have a conversation or have some disagreement with, then that's where I think you see the dogmatic phase as opposed to this is just of the say choices or the options out there where I align a little bit more. Yeah. I think so much of what we have been talking about and the issues like we're going to get into here, it's like, it's all about nuance, you know, mm -hmm. like these are highly complex issues that, you know, I, I find people are just towing the party line, you know, and it's like, Oh, well, I'm on, I'm on this team. Therefore I have to agree with everything on this team and hate everybody on the other team. And somehow we have to get out of this binary construct, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is, and and I shied away from it, and this was part of the, the impetus of the, the post to actually speak up, is that, you know, we, we have been almost trained to, we talk politics a lot, but we've almost been trained not to talk about it at least in, in a, in a civil way or all that often are like, Hey, let's get into some uncomfortable conversations. It's kind of like, you know, we, many people have been like, for whatever reason, told not to talk salary hmm. and don't, yeah, don't tell, don't tell other people what your salary is, especially if you have the same job. Like that's, you know, it's just uncouth or, you know, not professional mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's like, that only helps the employer. Like it only helps the employer, not the employee for people to kind of know. It's like, hmm. no, we, we can have conversation about that. And, and if it, if your salary is then lower, then it's like you going to your manager and being like, okay, why is it lower? Is it because my education is lower? Is it because my output isn't as good? Is it because I'm not, you know, the boss's nephew or whatever. Right. And okay. That's, that's more data. Like I am, I'm an engineer. I love data. I want more data. Give me more data so I can see what I can, you know, analyze and do with it. And I think sometimes the same is true with, with politics of rather than, you know, we would much rather follow a campaign slogan than to get into the nuance of what the campaign slogan means. And like you said, it's nuance. It means that it takes work. And I think one of the, you know, the things that if we, and I don't know how we get there and I don't know necessarily why we aren't there, but if political discussion was more of the norm, if it was more people kind of like, no, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to do, see where I stand. Let's have a conversation and learn and grow. And that's part of our, you know, civil conversation that we have every day. Then we could get into the nuance, but right now, because of say the speed of media or um, social stuff that we're on constantly, or we're just all very busy, we don't get into that, that nuance. Yeah. <laughs> you said something there. I, I was I was thinking about it this whole time you were talking about it. So you, when you talked about, okay, so workers in a company not talking about their pay, right? Mm -hmm. And that is kind of the societal norm, right? Like we mm -hmm. don't talk about it. And you're the first person I've heard to call that into question as if that could be a bad thing. And I've always looked at it, I mean, kind of however, I guess everybody else does look at it. I, I can't speak for everybody else, but I'm definitely on the same page as everybody else in terms of like, oh yeah, let's not talk about it. Because like I worked at this one company back in New York. I still do some freelance for them, but basically it was a small motion graphic design company. One guy's the boss. There's uh, anywhere from like four or five of us freelancers at, at any given time. And we're, we're basically permalancers. So we come in, 
for a project. If there's no more work, we leave, whatever. So none of us, the five employees, they're not, we're not even employees, but the five permalancers there, we worked together in and out for several years. So we developed friendships. We're very close. I'm still very good friends with a couple of them now. Um, we never once talked about what we're making. Mm-hmm. And the reasons are multifold because you express it in terms of like, well, it's good for the guy hiring them all. It's good for the boss. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm processing that, but I'm also, I, I don't disagree with you on that. But on the other hand, I'm like playing it out in my head. It comes up in conversation with my other friend there. Cause like, it's it's kind of like almost going to the point of like some things are better left unspoken because it kind of turns into a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode here. You know what I'm saying? Really quick where I'm like, oh, how much do you make? Uh, and they're like, well, I make 900 a day. And I'm like, really? Because um, I'm only making 700 a day. And then, mm-hmm. and then it ends up into this awkward situation where, okay, I'm either going to go confront the boss about it. And Hey, how come, how come Charlie over here is making 900 and uh, I'm only making 700. And then what is the boss going to say? Like he, he basically has one of two options. He's either going to justify why that person is making more money or mm-hmm. he's going to say, okay, well, okay. I guess I should also pay you the 900, right? Those are pretty much the two yeah. options, right? Theoretically. And in, and in what sense is that negative for you? Aside from a, a quote unquote awkward conversation, which we could talk uh, about why it's, it's society saying that it's an awkward conversation versus like anything suggesting that it has to be. Right. So if this is an if this is mm-hmm. this is just in the case of I took the information of I'm making two hundred dollars less and then I could just sit on that yeah. and feel and feel miserable. And feel like, oh man, like I feel like a lesser person than my friend who otherwise we felt like peers a minute ago, you know? So in that sense, it's made me feel worse. So let's just say I leave it there and I don't confront my boss. I'm kind of worse off. It puts a little bit of a strain on the friendship. It it, it develops a little bit of an inferiority complex. So there's like a lot of negative consequences from that. So now that's if I don't go talk to the boss. Now let's say if I go do, I go talk to the boss. I go talk to the boss and he says, well, you know, Charlie over here, he, uh, he's really good in a lot of ways. And I would say your quality of work is here, but he does things up here, you know, and I, I work in a creative field, so it's not the kind of thing where it's, you can quantify it like, you know, right. in other professions. So, so he might justify that, which in my head, I already kind of thought, and I'm actually giving you a real world example here because mm-hmm. in this company, there's a guy and I, I would say he's better than me. I yeah. would say he's, he's faster and quicker. He knows everything ins and outs. He's, he's a beast. He's, he's an awesome designer animator. So I just assumed he's making more money than me. And at the same time, there's some other people at the company where I feel like I'm better than them. So I assume they're making less than me. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I guess where I'm getting at is like the idea of this maybe is better left unspoken because it doesn't put a strain on the friendships of coworkers. But also if I go bring it up with the boss, if I go do that and then my other employee comes and sees it, like, well, let's say my, let's say the boss just gave me a raise to go up to 900. All right. So now me and Charlie are both making 900. And then, but the other coworkers, then they go and talk to the boss, you know, and then it kind of develops this spiral effect of like, well, the boss can't afford to pay everybody 900. Right. Or in theory. Mm-hmm. So it kind of ends up, what is the net result? Is it, is it better or worse for everybody? I mean, it typically ends up being better for the employees in the sense of like, yeah, you then at least understand for me. And this is maybe, you know, I recognize that I am not the, I'm not the, the pillar of which to, to judge emotion by, because, you know, as an engineer, I also kind of consider emotions as data as well. Um, right. In that sense of like, okay, if this makes me happy, I want to do more of it. If it makes me upset, okay, why does it make me upset? Let me sit with that emotion, but for a period of time, but after that thing about, okay, why does that make me upset? And then can I change it? Great. Let me do that. Can I not change it? All right. Well then work to not have it affect me emotionally so much because I can't actually change it. And, uh, and so in this sense, like, yeah, if, if I'm working and find out that I make less than so-and-so and I go, one, my thought would be I would go and talk to the boss because if I don't, you're like you said, yeah, it, it doesn't, you know, maybe then I start to have animosity for this person who is my friend, but it's like, why would that, why should I allow that to happen when it's just a conversation? So let me go and have a conversation. And if the boss is like, yeah, your work just isn't as good, that to me is then data. And it might sting a little bit, but now I have, you know, quote unquote, the facts and I can say, okay, well, if I want to get to 900 a week, then maybe I need to improve or adjust my style to match what they want to do, right? Or what they see as that value. Okay, well, mm-hmm. if I don't want to change my style that way, then okay, maybe I am comfortable with 700 because I still get to do the thing that I want to do in the way that I want to do it. Or if they say, oh, you need this degree. Or if they're like, that's just how it is, then it's like, okay, well, do I... Do I want to work long-term for organization that treats people kind of like that? That's where we talk a little bit about, okay, well then if you're going to say that, well, maybe I start to look for a different job where I am paid 900. But mm-hmm. for me, I want the, you know, I think it's the data and the only, really, I think, because would you have any problem asking your coworkers like, hey, how much um, vacation time do you get? Or what, like, what hardware were you given when you started this job? Or what onboarding or things like that? Like, would you have any issue talking about other things related to, say, compensation overall as opposed to just salary? Um, well, I'm the wrong person to ask because I've been freelancing for so long. There yeah. are no, there are no other, there are no other kind of benefits. We're all kind of yeah. But would you ask a question of like, hey, what uh, what's your payment schedule? Are you paid weekly or monthly, or do you are you a ten ninety nine or W two or well, you're ten ninety nine if you're a contractor? Would you? Yeah, like, we were uh, all ask- pretty much the same. Yeah. But I think like for for many people, it's like, oh yeah, I would have no problem asking you know this question. It's just salary, okay? So then, why does salary feel different? Well, it's because we've been kind of trained to think of it as something that we shouldn't say. We've been told that we shouldn't say it. And, and then we maybe feel like we're going to be awkward with our peers. And it's fascinating to me that it's like, 
I don't know. I was watching a comedian perform, uh, and it was a, we do a virtual open mic every Saturday. So as you talked about, hey, how do I do a comedy? Like, come join our virtual open mic. Uh, it's supportive. It's fun. Um, check it out. I you know give feedback uh, on people's set if they are open to it, if they want it, just from a hey, here's perspective from 15 years of being a comedian. Here, what you can do and stuff. And we had a comedian on, and she was talking about how. Uh, one of her, like her ex. Oh, real quick, real quick, before I forget, what's the name of it? I can include the link in the show notes. Yeah, so all of our events are at humorthatworks.com slash calendar. And so we have, we do open mics every Saturday, improv drop-ins on a bunch of Sundays. We have some some virtual stand-up and storytelling shows that we do every uh, other week. Um, but yeah, so all of that's at oh, humorthatworks.com slash calendar. Cool. But, um, so this comedian was doing this, joke about her ex-boyfriend having slept with like five of her best girlfriends and you know she had this joke about how she was going to get back at her you know ex-boyfriend and all this other stuff and it was funny but i was like i'm just curious um you know did you get back at your your girlfriends as well uh or did you uh you know are you still friends with them because a lot of times we see, like, we hear a story about the cheating on things, and people are upset with the guy for having cheated, but not necessarily the friend for having cheated with the guy. <laughs> Just like, right. you know, some people are upset about, you know, illegal immigrants taking jobs, but they aren't upset with the employer that employed them at a lower wage likely right. knowing that they are illegal immigrants. Right. Right. In this same yeah. case, we might get upset with our friends because they make more, but not necessarily upset with the person paying them more, despite the fact that the the output is the same or similar. And so, you know, for whatever reason, we sometimes, you know, change where we're putting our, you know, whether it's anger or our attempt to change or our emotional kind of reaction on one thing versus maybe where it can be a more effective place somewhere else. Hmm. This is really interesting. The funny thing about this is I just had a conversation with a, a, one of my good friends. He's Puerto Rican. And we were talking about white privilege. And he said something to me yesterday. And it was like, this white guy who is, he has a lot of respect for, you know, tall, blue-eyed, blonde hair, good-looking white guy. He got in this conversation with him and it was they were talking about entrepreneurialism and risk assessment. Mm -hmm. And um, he kind of, um, just to really quickly summarize, he, this white guy kind of told my friend, it's like, uh, he asked about my friend's upbringing and of course, Puerto Rican parents and we grew up in the military and all this stuff. But he made the point that his parents are so conservative and risk averse that essentially he's inherited that. And this white mm -hmm. guy was telling my friend, to maybe rethink, you know, if you have a good idea, if you have that much of an edge in your business model, go for it, you know, go all in, you know, because that, that's how he operates as a mm -hmm. privileged white male. So, and then he got to asking and they talked back and forth. Apparently this white guy, his parents were business people and entrepreneurs and his grandparents were, and it's like, you know, it is kind of a generational inherited thing of like, you know, even kind of like what you're just telling to me now. It's so foreign to me in a way because I was not raised that way. I was not raised to kind of, you know, rock the boat or, mm -hmm. you know, speak up and express my disdain. You know, you know, there's that stereotype that Asians are kind of the model minority, you know, you've heard. Mm -hmm. 
And it's because we don't, we don't speak up in that way. We don't fight, you know, like, you know, so. And and that is, that's for sure, you know, a form of the privilege that I got. Although you did just make me realize that there, there is one privilege that I don't quite have. I'm not short, but I'm not tall. If I went, if I absolutely, if I had a, a monopoly on all the privileges, I'd be like at least six one, at least based on on yeah. studies. You're more likely to to be CEO or that kind of thing if you're a little bit taller. So that's one privilege that I don't have because I'm only five uh-huh. eleven. Um, I was, was going to ask you about that earlier, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for helping me with that. But you're exactly right. Like if you have, you know, I was. Uh, growing up, I was, I was told, cause I did well in school. I was always academic and like that kind of thing. And I was told from my parents pretty early on, you can be kind of whatever you want to set your mind to. And, uh, neither of my parents had college degrees. And when I graduated from Ohio state and started working at PNG at Procter and Gamble, my starting salary was higher than my mom's salary, uh, after 20 years of experience because she didn't have a college degree. Mm-hmm. And, so part of like there's there's a there's a generation or group of people that would never then leave PNG because they you know they like like we grew up there were times where it was tough like our, my parents did a fantastic job where we never experienced it but looking back we knew that there are times that we we're kind of you know living paycheck to paycheck and they had a lot of stress amount you know money and things like that and so for me to get a job at PNG right out of college that's base I'm basically set for life in the sense that I will live comfortably, right? Because PNG pays a, a pretty good salary. If I do my job well, I'll have interesting assignments. I will uh, live comfortably uh, based off the cost of living in Cincinnati, Ohio. I will, you know, get married, have a white picket fence, two and a half kids, a cat and a dog, right? Mm-hmm. I'll have all of those things. And so for, so for many people, especially if you grew up kind of with this mindset of, having even less than what we had, you would maybe never be willing to leave that. For me, because I'm an engineer, I was hesitant to leave. My mom was hesitant for me to leave. But I also then put together a plan, a spreadsheet of all the things that I needed to accomplish before I'd feel comfortable leaving because I I had reasons to believe I'd be successful. I was able to save up enough money so that if I didn't make any money for a year starting this business, that if I ate ramen noodles, I could, you know, survive. I uh, had enough confidence to also, I did it over three years. It was something that I was able to do kind of part-time and build up over time that like, Mm -hmm. you know, those are things that I wouldn't necessarily have the mindset to do, like you're saying, based on a certain way that I'm raised. And that's a form of privilege, whether it's a class privilege because we were lower middle class or um, um, a male privilege or white privilege or whatever, those are things that impact. And so if we go back to that idea of like, well, just treat everyone equal, everyone has the same equal things and they still, you know, everyone has 168 hours in a week. Well, yeah, if, if, you know, you don't have to spend part of those 168 hours worrying about where your next meal is going to come from, you can have slightly different thoughts and actions in someone who is worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything we're talking about here, it's, I think we are kind of breaking down the nuances of what right, white privilege is. And I'm the kind of person where I, I don't ever scream and yell white privilege, white privilege, but I'm also this, the same person who does believe it exists and it is a thing. And I think in the subtle ways that you're talking about, I, I agree. 
that it does exist and it is a, a force. Now, the question then becomes sort of what do we do about it, right? So when we're talking yeah. about systemic racism and they're not one and the same, you know, white privilege and systemic, they're related, but they're not, mm-hmm. they're not the same. But when it comes to the the concept of systemic racism, I, while I can get on board with what we're talking about now, I also find myself pushing back against the sort of the BLM narrative right now that all black people are being hunted down on the streets. Every black person is walking out in fear of their lives. They might not make it home tonight. I just, I don't buy that. I don't. Well, I, and I think that, you know, one for understanding like black lives matters and I'll, I'll admit I, one, I think the, the movement has changed a little bit, has evolved. Um, from what it was, you know, uh, a few years ago. And also I think that either intentionally or not intentionally, some people are hearing it as only Black Lives Matter, and that's not at all what the movement is. It is, you know, there's a, there's a fantastic cartoon that came out a couple of years ago to, to better the, explain The Burning House. Yeah, The Burning House. Yeah. And it's that idea. And, and so the... But and I'll challenge it. I mean, I would I would ask you. I would say talk to some of your black friends to ask them because I have a friend of mine, um, best friend since seventh grade. He's the one that got me into improv at Ohio State. Um, he um, he's black. He grew up in Cincinnati, and he like we were talking the other day, and he's like, there has not been a six month period in my life since like 1995 that I haven't heard about. Uh, a black person dying at the hands of police. Uh, now, obviously, there are certain cases where you know uh, a black person is killed by the police that it was absolutely needed that it had to happen. Uh, but we're also seeing through social media, like George Floyd did not have to die, right? right there was right. no kind of resistor or anything like that. That is a clear case of that did not have to die, was not a threat to anyone. And you're seeing that more and more over social media, and now imagine if you've seen that, you've heard that, you've heard stories every six months for the last 15 years, no, 20 years uh, of it. And, and maybe not all of us heard it because certainly we didn't always see those news, but you can believe if it's your community members who are dying, you're going to hear about that more often, right? So we might say, well, I haven't heard it every six months. Well, we also haven't been paying to the, pay attention to the same news. But if you're hearing that every six months, and then you get pulled over by the police, that's a very different experience than me sitting in a car getting pulled over by the police. I've never been nervous about my life when pulled over. I've been upset because of like, oh, was I really going that fast? Or why are they actually pulling me over? I, I've, I stopped completely at that stop sign. I've maybe been annoyed either at myself or like the fact that there was a cop there, but I've never once thought this is going to end poorly. And if I make the quote unquote wrong move that I will die. But someone who's heard that story every six months, and and he shared with me uh, a stat that back in 2015, over a 50-week period, 100 black men were killed by police. That is twice a week. That is like, you know, I'm I'm a fan of kind of associations and metaphors and, and the thought of that of like, SNL only comes out with an episode every week, right? It takes them an entire week to do that, at least in the U.S., Twice a week, more frequent than SNL coming out, there's a black person killed by a police officer. Now, me saying those things are meant to be purely fact. It's I'm not saying that 
all police are bastards, right? I'm not saying defund the police and completely have no police officers out there whatsoever. I am not saying that white lives don't matter. I'm not saying that brown lives don't matter. What I'm saying is in this particular issue, for whatever reason, there is an increase in black people dying at the hands of police. That's where hashtag Black Lives Matters stand like means for me. And now it's a bigger movement. Also understanding the other systematic things of like the only time I'm ever followed around a grocery store is I'm with one of my black friends. The only time I've ever been pulled over by a cop in Miami of Ohio was if I had one of my black friends in the car with me. And so you start mm. to, if you are experiencing this type of stuff every single day, it has an impact on how you're going to behave. It's also not saying that what everyone is doing, what everything is, is happening is, is perfect and great out there. But for me, as, as someone in a place of privilege, I'm trying to better understand that now so that I know what impact they're going through or what type of things they're going through and to say, are there changes that we can make? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you there. Um, a couple of things that I want to make a couple of distinctions here. So mm -hmm. the idea that you, whenever, when, I don't know what the numbers are, but like uh, whenever you're with your black friend, you get pulled over or is it kind of like the, no, the yeah, rare occasion where you have been pulled over? It's exactly. Been, yeah. It's not, it's not every time. No. And I don't think that people are saying, you know, yes, but, and honestly, I can't say, right. You're going to have to talk to some other people that have actually experienced of, do they feel, do they feel some type of microaggression every single day? I don't know, but you can talk to a lot of friends and they, they, they experience it quite a bit. See, like, Again, and maybe this has a little bit more to meet with me to being the quote unquote model minority. But mm -hmm. after 9 11, it was all about, okay, brown people are the enemy, right? And I remember, I remember listening to Chris Rock and like black comedians at that point talk about how, all right, now uh, brown people, welcome to the party here. You know, like now brown people are being targeted. And, um, and I remember living through that time. And I, I moved to New York in 2002 after that happened. And, when I would fly, when I would go to the airports, again, like even back then, like I was still conservative guy, right? So, but mm -hmm. my understanding was when I got racially profiled, when I'm at the airport and I noticed they spent more time with me or they took me this, to the side, I was kind of like, like kind of how your approach is, right? As an engineer, you know, dealing in terms of logic. I'm like, does it make sense for them to pull or to to stop me more than stop a, a white grandma in a wheelchair, right? <laughs> now, granted, I was a conservative person then, but even still now today, I would say, okay, I get it. You know, I can understand why I would look more the part. So therefore, there's a higher propensity of them to give me a look over or have more doubt about my intentions, right? I, I get it. Now, I'm being racially profiled, but at the same time, I understand why. My whole thing is like, look, treat me with respect, though. You know, don't treat me like I'm a criminal. Don't like antagonize me. Don't like abuse me. Don't because that is just flat out wrong. You know, but if you're basically just statistically going to pull me and brown people more out, I'm not going to stamp my foot and say, 
you know, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it is what I'm saying, you know? But I mean, and, and is that okay in, in a country that's supposedly based on freedom, that's supposedly through in the constitution of, you know, all men, all persons, you know, created equal. Is that okay? Is racial profile because, I mean, from a purely logical standpoint, or is it, I mean, you could say the same thing technically about testing, right? Where it's like testing for COVID of, well, I mean, maybe we shouldn't test because whenever we test, we get increased numbers. Well, it's like, yeah, that's, that's how right. testing works. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't test. It means, in fact, we should be testing more because maybe the percentage of death is higher because we're only testing some people. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe it's actually a lot more pervasive and maybe a lot more people are asymptomatic that we don't know. Yeah. Right? Maybe the mortality rate is actually a little bit lower, but we're not willing to do the test because also, scarily, what if it's higher? And so, yeah, I think that you still want the the data of everyone. It's the same thing with stop and frisk like that happened in New York. It was like, oh, we can start stop and frisk. And oh, we just catch disproportionately more black people uh, with drugs on them. Um, but also, by the way, we're also only stopping black people uh, and or brown people or you know, um, whatever it is. And so I, I think that, you know, I, I understand kind of the, the quote on quote logic approach. I just don't know if it holds up to overall longer reason, right? Because if you, if you do it and, and if it does, then the question becomes, where does that come from? Right? Because then it's like, oh, well, is it because of, you know, cause a lot of times it's not necessarily a black or white issue. Again, it can go back to a class issue. If you look yeah, at yeah, like yeah. increase totally. of like crime and stuff like that, it's more of that it's in, impoverished neighborhoods, not whether they're black or white. Yeah. I was just about to give the example of, I'm just being honest here. This is how I function. And I think most people, if they're really being honest, this is how they all function as well. Um, At least in our socioeconomic class. So I'm in Philly. I'm walking down the street. It's late at night. There's nobody else around. I see a sketchy looking guy uh, who looks kind of homeless kind of drunk, kind of wobbly. He's mumbling, talking to himself, right? How do I go about approaching that situation? Me, I'm I'm extremely alert. I don't want to make eye contact with the guy, but I am keeping my eye in his general vicinity to make sure he doesn't make a move at me. I will keep a safe distance as much as I can. All of these are the little measures I will take to protect myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And to make sure a situation does not arrive here unnecessarily, the faster I get away from this person, the more distance I keep, the better off I will be. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is the honest to God truth of how I operate. And honestly, I think that's how most everybody would operate. Right. Absolutely. Now, whether the person is white or black or Hispanic doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. I would act the same way if this sketchy guy is white or Hispanic or black. Right. So, but the thing, the that's okay, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I'm stereotyping to protect myself and what you're just described. Like, this is based on mm, socioeconomic factors, right? Not race. Mm-hmm. But it is a form of, quote unquote, prejudice or stereotyping. So, I wouldn't fault people for that. But at the same time, if somebody had a camera, they're walking by and they saw a white Karen mm-hmm. um, and the, the homeless guy walking down was black and she crossed the street or something, you know, they've recorded it on their phone. She's going to be shamed for being a racist. When my point is like, well, actually, I, 
maybe partially to do with race, but it's not all about race, you know? So yeah. this well, is kind of one of the things that bothers me about the, the, the debate these days is that everything is being attributed to race where I feel like race is only part of the overall equation, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that. And I do think that some people take it to the extreme of things. And I think you see that in, you know, a lot of different areas as well. Like, I don't know, it's, it's, you can think to like the, the Me Too movement and uh, there's a lot of, and, and what's crazy though is there's, there's probably sh- even more systematic stuff where that still hasn't come out because it's only in certain industries. But at the same time, you at least look at the, like the Aziz Ansari kind of case Right. And that's to me a different scenario than Louisa K or Bill Cosby or, you know, some of these other groups. It was more of like, okay, that's someone who potentially just was awkward, thought someone was into them. They weren't mm-hmm. push like, you know, tried to, to make a move. They weren't into it. And then it's like, okay. And and there was a New York Times um op ed from a woman who was like, that wasn't necessarily assault. That was just, you know, an attempt at bad sex. Mm-hmm. And and so I do agree that some of this is goes too far, right? And again, but I'm I'm a male, so that's a, a different perspective sharing that. And I think the other thing to 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 recognize, just as you're chatting with about that, is is to recognize when I'm talking about privilege, I don't mean that doesn't mean that you don't face discrimination or that you don't experiencing things that are negative. For example, male privilege is one of those where it's like if you look at suicide rates, they are higher for men. If you yep. look at other, there's certain challenges where, you know, it's difficult for men as well, but that doesn't mean that male privilege doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that there are some forms of female privilege that don't yeah. exist. Um, but when it comes to that specific case, I think it's helpful to understand, you know, the way that some of this works is we as humans make snap judgments. We make very quick decisions and we had to, especially as evolution went on, for us to be able to survive, you need to be able to quickly determine is that a, is that rustling in a bush a saber-toothed mm-hmm. tiger or just the wind? And this is partially where humor came in. Humor is part of our evolutionary process of like there's a, a theory of humor of relief tension of like that we laugh when we're relieved, when we have tension and then that, that tension is relieved. So you thought it was a saber-toothed tiger, but it's just your friend Grog, your caveman friend Grog in the bush, you know, there to scare you, then you're going to laugh, right? Um, but these snap judgments help to keep us alive. Same thing of like when we were at a, a, a point in our, our kind of like the cycle of humanity that we were constantly fighting, that you had tribes fighting each other, groups fighting each other. You had to kind of make distinctions of, is this someone who's going to be in my in-group or out-group and, and keep me safe? Uh, or are they going to potentially attack me? So certainly you need to be aware of that. I think what the work is that's involved is recognizing that we still hold those snap judgments from an evolutionary you know perspective hopefully we have evolved as a species that we're not at that you know that we're not going to have those same challenges and that we all have implicit bias it's not to say that bias by itself is bad because I have those same thoughts, right? I have that same thought of like, if I'm walking down the street and see a certain kind of like thing, I'm going to walk to the other side. It's just more prudent or safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's for me to recognize, okay, yeah, walking down in the middle of the night and someone holding something in their hand that might be a, a knife. Uh, yeah, it would be prudent for me to, to walk across the street. 
me walking down the middle of the day and it's someone kind of like, you know, nicely dressed, but just because of the color of their skin right. that I like, you know, walk across, that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And it's up for me to then say, okay, what is that bias? And can I check myself on it to make sure that it doesn't then impact me booking my stand-up shows or me giving opportunities to other people or me implementing laws that, you know, specifically go towards or against a specific like race. Like I think that is, that's the work that's involved. Not to say that, Oh, I'm not racist at all, or I'm not prejudiced at all, but to say, okay, can I separate the initial snap judgment that I make and the actions that I take? Yeah. Yeah. One thing I bookmarked here that I wanted to go back to is when you were talking about your, your black friend and how he was, you were saying he heard like whatever those numbers were you threw out. Um, every couple months there's another black or every week or whatever. I would, I want to say like, do you know who Tony Timpa is? I do not. Okay. Or David Dorn. Mm-mm. David okay. Dorn sounds familiar, but I might be thinking of game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> no um okay so this kind of proves my point is that tony timpa is a guy who a cop had his knee on his back and was pressing him down and he couldn't breathe and he died mm-hmm. nobody knows who tony timpa is though and you see where i'm going with this mm-hmm. he was white yeah so Part of the reason why it might seem like your friend feels like every week a black person is being shot by cops is, well, if the media is only going to cover that, then that's all that people will think is happening. You know, I just discovered this guy, Tony Timpa, on a on a whim, like some friend of mine who's Korean and American, Korean and white. He sent it to me. First, he sent me a meme and it was just. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know who Tony Timp is and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, is this real? You know, my, my, my first assumption mm-hmm. is like nowadays with everything, I'm like, I don't trust anything. Right. So especially if it's in a meme, I'm like, all right, is this real or is this just meant to? And he's like, no, dude, it's real. And then he sent me the video link of the actual cop cam of it actually happening. And I watched it and I was like, man, I didn't know about this. Mm-hmm. And I told my mom and like friends, like nobody would know about it. And if you look at the statistics and the data, cops actually kill unarmed white men more than they do unarmed black men. And this is just the statistics. And you can say, well, that's because quantitatively speaking, there's going to be more white criminal offenders because there's more white people in the country. Mm -hmm. Fine. But you also have to look at who's committing most of the crimes, you know, on a percentage basis. And percentage wise, more blacks are committing crimes than whites, violent crimes as well. So when it comes to when it comes to drug crimes, that's really debatable and subjective. And I think we should not be arresting people just for possession of marijuana and all those kind of things. That, mm-hmm. that to me is a, definitely a point of systemic racism that needs to be rooted out. But when we're talking about violent crime, that's separate. Like violent crime is like, look, if you're robbing a bank, if you're, you know, holding up a liquor store or, or, you know, whatever, mugging somebody, burglary. Eh, there's not really an excuse for that. You're committing a violent crime 
that's why we have police to protect the law-abiding population from people like that. And the majority of those people are black. So that is just to us talking about cops and black people. But we have to also look at the numbers of black on black violence. And I'm sure you've heard this already now in like Chicago and inner city. It's like blacks are killing blacks at an alarmingly high rate. And I've been meaning to sit down and do my research and like get all the numbers together and prepare a proper presentation of it and all this stuff. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm not an activist. This is not my job. And, you know, but I could do that. I may do that at some point because I, I do kind of want to put this together and put it out there. But from what I have seen, this is what the data points toward. So I'm just saying that to, to give a broader perspective of the problem with the Black Lives Matter movement is, it's not even the problem with Black Lives Matter movement. It's, 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 it's the collective understanding. It's the story that we're all being led into going along with. And if you don't go along with that story, like somebody like Candace Owens, I don't know, do you know who she is? Mm-hmm. So she doesn't go along with that story. And she's the one who actually comes out with the statistics, with the figures and talks about all these things, these very uncomfortable things that people don't want to talk about. She does that and she's immediately vilified as an Uncle Tom, as an Aunt Tom, you know, as a... As a mm-hmm. So... And she's probably the only person who could get away with even saying those things because she is black and because she is a woman, you know, certainly a white person could not come out and say what she says because they would just be labeled. They're like David Duke, you know, Mm -hmm. they would be thrown into that bucket. Forget about facts and statistics, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier when I was talking about like a post-fact society, like we were reaching a level of hysteria, not reaching, we were already past the level of hysteria where the facts don't even matter anymore because so, it, it does come down to perception and, and the the friend you mentioned your black friend that's kind of what i'm talking about you know mm-hmm. it's like if we have a collective understanding that black people are being hunted down in the streets of course there's a problem with that of course people are going to be up in arms and, and but we have to be really honest about the reality you know i i saw the statistic well, somewhere yeah. there's like 44 million uh, black Am- americans something like that and nine nine unarmed black men were shot in the in 2019. I think that was the number, something like that. So I'm like, wow, nine unarmed men shot or killed by police out of a population of 44 million or whatever it was. So obviously we would love that number to be zero, right? Mm-hmm. But we would also love the number of drunk driving deaths to be zero. We would love, love the number of cancer deaths to be zero. We would love the number of diabetes-related deaths to be zero. But do we eliminate sugar from all food products because of diabetes? You know? Do we No, but we we make we make certain changes. So I I, I completely understand kind of what you're you're saying in that um we should absolutely like we have to understand the context of which all this happens. And this is why, like you said, nuance is so important. Because, you know, I love data as much as the next person, but I also am fully aware that statistics like can be used in a lot of different ways, right? Because you can look at, like you said, you can look at, okay, what's the percentage of the population that is killed by police? Okay, overall percentage is higher. But then if you look at the disproportionate, like you said, of uh, okay, the, the makeup of the population versus the number of deaths, then it becomes a little bit 
uh, different. Same thing of like, yeah, you can say, oh, but the, you know, black on black crime is way higher than police on black crime. Uh, but just because black people are killing other black people doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at, you know, issues of a police officers doing it. Cause I think that's also part of where the conversation comes in is that there is a belief and maybe we're, we're wrong about it of what is the, the police are meant to be there to protect and serve that theoretically they should be held to a higher standard by virtue of the job than just someone, you know, kind of on the street. Right. They should because that's part of what they they do. And so then you look at it and you realize, oh, they aren't actually given a ton of training. They aren't given training on bias. They aren't given training on de-escalation, perhaps. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't think I could be a police officer. I'm saying it is a incredibly challenging job. But then you have groups and, and police officers who have violent kind of, you know, infractions or things like that, and they just get moved to a different department. Yeah, that's it's terrible. the same thing yeah. with priests that then, right. you know, and yeah. they get they move to like that doesn't mean that, oh, well, because, you know, with priests, you it's like, oh, well, there's plenty of other pedophiles out there who aren't priests. So we shouldn't fix up, you know, uh, <laughs> the Catholic Church like that's not that doesn't make any sense. Right. So to say that black people kill more black people, so let's not worry about, you know, um, that. No. And you're exactly right. The, the nuance of, say, you know, something like Black Lives Matter isn't and it, it kind of I don't know necessarily how much of a choice it is, but there's going to be some people that look at it and they see, um, yes, this is OK. I understand the systematic challenges. Yes. Uh, okay, maybe not defund. It's not defund the police completely. Let's not create a hamster dam like in um, huh. yeah. uh, the wire. But instead, oh, could more funds instead of all of the that funding be put, uh, you know, put into giving a small town a tank? To should we be teaching people about mental health? Should we be teaching people about should there be more community things? And I think that's a lot of what people are are talking about when when they say defund the police or not, or at least that's my interpretation of it. And again, I could be wrong, but that's, I think, what a lot of people are talking about, where it's not abolish the police completely. It's about police reform. And so how yeah. do we make those types of, of changes? And that, of course, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't discount any of the other things that you said, but then it also comes back to look at, okay, okay, why is there potentially more black on black crime or why is there more violent crime in these places, et cetera? And a lot of times it goes back to education, right? It goes back to, it's all kind of interconnected in these different systems. And so some of it is additional bias. Right, some of it is additional challenge. You can even look at things like unemployment. I, I don't know. There's a um, I don't know if you listened to the sixteen nineteen podcast from the New York Times. I think it was last year, but really interesting case about discrimination against black farmers. And you can see, okay, if that's happening systematically over a period of time, you are going to see more um, uh, black farmers than in in poverty and things like that. Okay, and then which case then they're going to, you know, maybe that does lead to more crime. Again, it goes back to some of the class stuff. And this is all stuff I can't completely speak to because I don't know all the data that you kind of cited. So I'd have to certainly take a look at it and and better understand that. And also, again, my perspective is that is of a, of a white male um, who tries to see everything through, you know, rosy, sunny glasses. <laughs> Yeah, I, w I was going to say earlier when you described yourself as an optimist, it's funny because like I'm definitely not an optimist, especially, I don't know, like I, 
I'm trying to process everything happening in our society right now. And I, I hate to use the term better or worse or good or bad. I, I don't like using those terms anymore because of what does that really even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, I just, I don't even know. I find myself speechless now with everything. I'm like, all right, let's, um, let's uh, tear down all the statues and uh, <laughs> eradicate the mentioning of slavery from textbooks. Let's not learn from that lesson of what not to do. Um, let's say the Holocaust never happened. Uh, like where, um, let's get rid of Aunt Jemima. Let's cancel uncle Ben. Let's get rid of Taco Bell, Starbucks. Like, you know, it's just, I don't know. I don't know where we're going with this. And unfortunately we're running low on time because I did want to bring this back to the concept of cancel culture and talk mm-hmm. about comedy and all that because, you know, but we're running out of time there for, to, to jump into that. Yeah. But Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a, a general, you know, I'm an engineer, so I try to think of like, okay, what it, what are what are solutions? What are next steps? Um, and I think, you know, at least for me, trying to really, you know, listen to understand, um, really kind of connect with people who have differing viewpoints for me, because I would like I I enjoy I'm enjoying this conversation because I'd much rather have a conversation where you're like, what about this? And here's some studies and things like that than I would from someone, one, that just completely agrees with me. There's a, an old management adage that says that if two people think exactly the same, one of them is unnecessary. Uh, and that sense, and, and from a purely from a purely kind of like leadership or corporate perspective, that's not like a human thing. Of like, if two uh-huh. people think of the same, one of them can die. Like, no. <laughs> uh, right. Just like in terms of a, a role, of an assignment, you want diversity of thought. You mm-hmm. want to be able to have conversation. And I think if more people can be at least open to it to like, let me understand that side. What are the challenges that you have? What are the things that you want to do? Like I'm, I'm trying to do that more and more so that I can improve my understanding so that I can gain more data and potentially change my perspective. And then I'm also just trying to check in a little bit more of myself of like, okay, what biases do I have? Uh, Cause I, mm-hmm. I certainly still have them. I still have those initial thoughts, but how do I then at least reconcile those, those thoughts? And, you know, like I said, not turn it into discriminatory action. Uh, right, because thoughts are different from from actions, and to pretend like no one is racist, I think, or no one is prejudiced, or whatever is is very unlikely. Um, and so, saying okay for myself, how do I improve? And that's that's the overall thing is like, how do we? My hope is around how as society, how do we kind of like start to make some of these strides? Because I, I think about what could we as a human race be doing. If we weren't doing something, could we like clean up the planet a little bit more? Could we do more, you know, space travel or something like that? If we had, you know, some of the top minds working on this type of stuff as, as opposed to, or I mean, even in the case of COVID, could we have less overall deaths if instead of politicizing things and trying to make it about, you know, now suddenly the statement of wearing a mask some, is somehow a, a political statement um, rather than trying to, to turn things like that into those types of discourse, could we be doing more to to advance kind of the entire human race and maybe that's too lofty maybe it's too pollyanna i don't know but that's that's a combination of optimism and, and engineering thinking about like ah what could be possible yeah i like that i like that i agree as well so um let's wrap there there's so many things <laughs> i wanted to get into further but uh if you're cool i'd love to have you on for a part two at some point down the line yeah we'll do a part um, two for sure Cool. Yeah. There's just, uh, I think one of the things I brought up in uh, your Facebook post, I, w- I was going to talk about colored people, the term yeah. people of color, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't even <laughs> we didn't even yeah, touch on we've that. We've got a number. Yeah, we'll have to do a, we'll have yeah. to do a part two so that we can continue to talk and and also still bring in that intersection of humor and cancel culture and uh-huh. all that. It's worth yeah. it's worth the conversation. Yes, totally cool. So before we sign off, is there anything uh, you would like to share as kind of a concluding remark or any social media or anywhere people can find you online and all that? Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, hope people are just um, are open to, to wanting to learn to connect, not, you know, getting into that bubble and, and finding people that you can have good, good, meaningful conversations with to, to learn and grow a little bit. Uh, I'm certainly open to that. So if people want to connect with me, I'm uh, at Drew Tarvin, D-R-E-W-T-A-R-V as in Victor, I-N on all social media. Uh, so if people want to connect, reach out, have a conversation, you know, if you want to challenge me on something like, Hey, I don't know if I agree with this or have you thought or learned or whatever about this, you know, more than happy to have those types of conversations for sure. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, It's great to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I hope this has been enlightening for you. The Introversion Podcast is on its way, but we've obviously got a long way to go to get to where we want to be getting to. I will certainly be doing my part in cranking out new episodes every week, but here's where you come in. If you haven't yet done so, hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're currently listening on. That way you can obviously get notified as soon as new episodes arrive. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please, please please give a five-star rating. It just takes a second and it will empower the Introversion Podcast to rise up and conquer the suppression of algorithms that would otherwise crush this fledgling podcast into unknown oblivion. So yeah, please leave a rating and even better, an actual review. Just a few words expressing what you dig about the podcast honestly would mean the world to me and would really help provide the motivation to keep this baby growing. Also, I'd love to hear from you at any time. Comments, questions, or if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, send an email to podcast at introversion.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I am Jay Caslow. That's J-A-Y-K-A-S-L-O. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, pretty much wherever. I really want the Introversion Podcast to be something special. Raw, informative, entertaining, experimental. Inconceivable. Enlightening, therapeutic for you and me. Let's keep the conversations going about a range of topics that affect us all. Let's rise above all the hate and sickness and sadness and strife that plague this world. Let's seek to better understand each other and ultimately live our best lives. Seriously, let's do this thing. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.